It's good to be with you again this morning. Our text is in uh, Ephesians 3. Uh, we're in a Luke series, um, but I'm preaching from Ephesians 3. It, the theme fits, so by way of background, um, what's been going on in the last few weeks as John has been preaching is um, he's talking about the kingdom, and the question comes up to him, well, how many are going to be in it? A lot of people coming, or only a few? And he says, don't worry about how many, just be sure you're one of them. Then someone else says, well, the way in, the door, um, is the door narrow or wide? Is it hard to get in, hard to find the door, or is it going to be easy to find the door and easy? He said, don't worry about the door itself, just be sure you go through the door. And then someone else says, well, how many doors are there? Is there going to be a lot of ways in? And he says, no, one way only. And in fact, the door we've been talking about is me. I am the door. I am the way in. And so be sure you're trusting in me. And then today's question that's answered by Ephesians 3 Someone says, you've sure been talking a lot about Israel and Jews and that nation and that country, and I'm getting worried. It sounds like I have to have some kind of national, ethnic, racial card somehow to get in, and I think I'm from the wrong country. And Paul's wonderful, blessed answer is, nope. You'll be fine, Gentiles too. So let's listen now to the word from Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1 through 13. We remember that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness 
and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for your holy and inspired and infallible and inerrant word. <clears throat> we ask that you would use it again by your spirit to teach us this day and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, for, your, for you outline people, the first point is the mystery revealed is Gentiles are included in salvation. Second point is whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, there's an inward power coupled with humility. And the third point is the attitude of a believer, Jew or Gentile, changes. One of my favorite movies is uh, The Wizard of Oz. I was about five or six years old when I first saw it. Now, this was back when there was no DVDs, no videos, no streaming, no Netflix. You had to wait until they broadcasted it over the air. And every year, our family would watch this movie. And I was terrified of that witch and her flying monkeys. And I thought, if monkeys can fly, we're in trouble. <laughs> Turns out they can't. I was worried about the scarecrow, if he could keep himself together and not catch fire and whether the tin man would get enough oil and be able to move his joints. But I was especially upset when they finally made it to Emerald City. You remember that? And after all of that, they were not allowed in. After so much trouble and heartache and pain and the guard at the door through that little peephole, cubbyhole, opened it and refused to let him in. But then, what, Dorothy remembers, she's wearing the special ruby red shoes, ruby red slippers, and so knocks again, says, now what do you want? And she shows him the shoes, and his face lights up with this huge smile, and he says, why didn't you say so? That's a horse of a different color. Come on in. And so the huge doors swing open, and all of the beautiful uh, Emerald City is made open to them. She's taken to the, the beauty parlor and the health spa, and the cowardly lion uh, gets his mane shampooed and braided, and the scarecrow gets fresh straw stuffed inside him, and the tin man gets shined and oiled, and even the little dog Toto gets a new bow in his hair. The outsider Dorothy and all her odd friends are allowed in, not because of their ethnic background or culture, but because of what she is wearing. Something special to wear was given to her, and that got her into the royal city. When you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you are granted entrance into heaven, not because of who you are, where you were born, or the color of your skin. So the first point is, the revealed mystery of God's plan for this world is that Gentiles now are included with Jews in the promise 
of salvation, that's verse 6, absolutely anyone can be saved. Now, this idea uh, astounded the Jews because they believed that Gentiles, and you've heard, were um, substandard, unclean, but Jesus included them, and Paul preached the gospel to them, and because that was such a repulsive idea, uh, he was thrown in jail for it. <clears throat> he alludes to that in verse 1. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile doesn't matter. It's faith in that Christ that unites us. We will end the service today by singing by faith. So that's the mystery or the revelation that Paul's talking about here. He says this was promised long ago and it's been alluded to and assumed all along, but now it's, it's made clear in the person and work of Christ. And verse 5 says the revelation was not made known to men in other generations as it has been now revealed. Now, this is not saying nothing's ever been said about this, <clears throat> and now here is some new plan B. No, rather, it's all part of the same plan A. It's just that Christ is the final and the clearest expression of it. The Old Testament prophets knew a Messiah was coming to save the people of God, and there was some mention of surrounding nations benefiting, but now, not just benefiting a little, now the big news is that Gentiles aren't just barely allowed in, they're equal members of the body. And the astounding news that Paul's preaching is that Gentiles are co heirs together on equal footing with Israel, members together of one body, and they share together in the same promise of salvation by grace through Christ. You realize what this means. The ground is level at the cross. Believing Gentiles are just as much elect as believing Jews, they are just as much justified, they are just as sanctified, and they will be just as glorified. This is especially good news for all races because we're all Gentiles here, aren't we? We are full, not partial, members of the body of Christ, his church. It's a little hard for us to, to understand um, how powerful a statement Paul is making here because the Jews uh, probably were pleased that the Gentiles could have a little of their blessing. That would be okay. Uh, some side benefit for them along the way would be fine. A little reflected light was okay. Maybe some food left over dropped from the table on the floor for the <clears throat> Gentile dogs. But here... Paul is saying they're equal members, full rights, same privileges, no distinction at all. The dividing wall has been removed by Christ. Well, this was unheard of. Racism is a big problem in our world today. <clears throat> we really do like to keep to our own groups most of the time, and so I think we can say humanly, speak, humanly speaking, Racism is nearly impossible to overcome. So where might such a desire to love outsiders come from? 
and, and going beyond just a desire. How might we be able to take action and actually do it? And I think <clears throat> um, maybe it's not as specific an answer as you would want, but I think Paul is saying here, and now we're moving to main point two, he's saying that there is both an inward and an outward effect in the life of every recipient of salvation. Something happens when a person is regenerated, whether they're a Jew or Gentile or any kind of foreigner. And verse 7 tells us that the something that happens is, I became a minister of the gospel by the gift of God's grace. Other translations say I became a servant. The words can be interchanged, servant or minister of the gospel. Now think for a minute what happens to this person when he or she becomes a servant of Christ. Well, this is the second point. There is an inward power coupled, oddly enough, with an inward humility. Usually we don't think power and humility go together, but in God's thinking, they do. And where do we, where do we get this? Well, earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, we learn where this comes from, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is resurrection power. We're humbled by the resurrection, but we're also empowered. Humility and power together. How so? Well, humility, no one can resurrect himself. Have you noticed that dead people tend to stay dead? There's nothing a dead person can do to make himself alive, and that's very humiliating and humbling in one sense. So if, if you were dead, but now you're alive, you're a very special person. And in the same way, if you were not a believer in Christ, but now you are due to resurrection power, it's the same kind of powerful thing that has happened to you. So you're now very powerful spiritually with resurrection power, but you also know you didn't do it. So you're very humble at the same time. Maybe you've heard this before. Paul's humility increased as he grew as a Christian. Uh, here in verse 8, back to chapter 3, our text, verse 8, is in the middle section of his growing awareness in his life. And by that, we mean there are three uh, benchmarks in his writings for his increasing awareness of being humbled by the gospel. Early in his ministry, he said he was the least of the 12 apostles. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Towards the middle of his ministry, he said he was the least of all Christians or saints. That's here today in our Ephesians 3, 8, and then later in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, he said he was the least of all sinners anywhere. I'm the worst of the 12 apostles. Nope, it's bigger than that. I'm, I'm the worst of all the saints. Nope, it's even more than that. 
I'm the worst of anybody. So that's the question of application to us today. Are we growing in humility? Awareness of the gift of the gospel put inside us with no work on our part, the more you think about that, the more you'll increase in your humility. But a lessened or decreasing study of the gospel and appreciation for it increases our pride. Well, that's the inward work where that's the first part of point two. There's something inward and, and something outward. Because of this inward presence of both humility and power, there will also be an outward effect of this resurrection power. And that will be, there will be a desire to tell others about this. Certainly true of Paul. Uh, he, he had a new desire to preach good news to the Gentiles, not persecuting them anymore as he had been doing. And in verse 8, Paul tells us what the content of this evangelism is to be, and he uses the phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Evangelism must be about Christ. He is the central message. In my experience, probably yours, that's simple to say, but it's hard to do. When we, we lived in a foreign culture for an extended period of time, and doing that gives you uh, the ability to see your own culture from another perspective, one that you can't really see very well when you're inside that culture. And other missionaries there agreed that it seemed that there was an increase in the number of Americans who say they are Christians, yet there was less talk than ever about Christ and his payment for sin on a cross and his giving his righteousness to us. And there was, there was less talk about that and more and more talk about Francis, Francis Schaeffer noticed this. He called that new thinking, the non-Christ thinking, personal peace and affluence, that that's what many Americans shared as the gospel when they tried to get someone to believe. Too many Americans wrongly think that the gospel is a means by which you can have freedom from conflict and pain, and instead of that, with Jesus, uh, you get peace and lessening trouble in your life. That's the uh, personal peace side of Schaefer's comment. And along with that, they want enough blessing, money, in their lives so that they can at least pay all their bills. I'm so tired of, you know, I'm running out of money every month and would like to have just a little, I don't want to be mega rich, but I just want to have enough to pay my bills and hopefully a semblance of a comfortable retirement. So try Jesus. You've tried everything else. Personal peace and affluence. And here Paul is saying that is no gospel at all. At all. He is saying the message we need to give is that Christ paid for your horrible sins and mine. 
And then he freely credited his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedient life to us, that our horrible sin record is erased and Jesus' perfect record is written in. And we're to make that amazingly good news plain to people. Good time to check in again. Um, I wonder if you have a personal plan to be doing this. That would, be, that would seem to be implied in verse 2. Verse 2 says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Another translation says the administration of God's grace. An administration refers to the outworking of a plan or a program. The government has an administration. A company has an administration. A school has an administration whereby they work out what they're supposed to be doing through a plan or a program. And we as believers should be aware that we're part of an administration or a plan for delivering good news. Put it this way, we are God's mailmen. We have good news to deliver to a lot of people. And wouldn't it be terrible if the mailmen went on strike and refused to deliver the mail? Well, may it never be with God's people. Now, at this point, someone might say, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, I thought you said this was all predestined. Uh, Paul, I thought you said the list was fixed before time began. And so if it's all decided beforehand, what's the deal here <clears throat> with preaching to the Gentiles? Why bother with evangelism and missions? And this objection sometimes comes up, but let's let God be God and let's let the Scripture speak and look at verse 10, don't miss this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Through the church. Do you see what happens when you biblically combine predestination with evangelism? Not only has God decreed who will be saved, he has also decreed how they will be saved. And, and by saying how, uh, I'm referring to the method, not the basis. Um, the person and work of Christ form the basis. We're not talking about that. <clears throat> but through the church, in verse 10, refers to the delivery system, uh, the instrument for this, the means. Another illustration is a syringe. Um, a lot of people don't like needles. I don't like needles. Sorry for this one. But a syringe is a delivery system for medicine. Now, whether the patient gets well or not depends on the medicine, not the syringe. If you stick someone with a syringe that has no medicine in it, all you've done is make them mad <laughs> because you hurt them for no reason. But if you stick them with a syringe that has life-saving medicine in it, yes, it hurts for a minute, but their life is saved. It's the message, not the messenger, that saves. God has chosen us to be messengers. 
So remember that, yes, uh, God elects people to salvation, but he's also chosen how people will find out. We, his church, are the delivery system or administration of evangelism. So if the actual saving is up to the triune God, the, the Father decreeing, the Son doing the actual redeeming in time and space, and the Spirit convicting and indwelling, what does my part look like? Only one half of 1% of Japan is Christian. One half of 1%. It may seem like there's no end to it. There's, there's too much to do. There's too many people lost and, and dying without hope and without God in this world. Well, the task of evangelizing the world may make us feel this way. I heard a story about a young man walking down the beach after a, a heavy storm. The sun had come back out, and he was walking down the beach, and he was picking up starfish which had washed up and were dying in the sun, in the sand, and he was throwing them back into the ocean, one by one. And an older man was walking behind him and said to him, son, that's a noble, uh, admirable thing to try to do, but, but look out ahead of you, uh, miles and miles of beach and thousands and thousands of starfish. You can't possibly get to them all before they die. And so in the bigger scheme of things, what does it matter? And the young man picked up another starfish, and he said, I don't know, but I can tell you it matters to this one. And threw it back in the sea. Well, verse 10 is saying, get this, this plan is according to God's manifold wisdom and eternal purpose. He came up with this. His wisdom and purposes are that you and I should share the gospel with the dying starfish closest to us. Yes, their, their name is either written in the, in the list in the book of life or not, but the purpose of election is not that we look at the list and get to see that. The purpose is that some actual sinners actually do get saved, and you can have assurance from that. Using people like us is God's manifold wisdom and eternal purpose. Last thought, um, and that is, third point is that your attitude changes. I've heard people say that they're afraid of sharing the gospel with others because they think they don't know enough theology um, and that they will somehow mess up the presentation and ruin it and, and get it wrong, somehow. And I think the story of the thief on the cross uh, simplifies things for us. Scottish preacher Alistair Begg talks about this. Uh, Barbara found this on the Internet recently. Um, I'm probably going to embellish it a little bit, but... Um, <clears throat> He speculates about uh, when the thief got to heaven that day. And I'll try my Scottish accent, and I hope Alex can translate that. Uh, 
an American doing a Scottish accent translated into Spanish. This probably won't work. <laughs> so he gets there, and they say, what are you doing here? You're a thief. How did you get here? And the thief said, I don't really know. <laughs> that man said I could come. And so they said, well, do you believe in justification by faith? And he said, I've never heard of that. <laughs> and they said, have you read any of the Bible? He said, I don't have one. I don't know what that is. What about double imputation? I've never heard of it. But that man said I could come. Me mate on the other cross was going on and criticizing the man. But I said to him, you be quiet. We are here because we deserve it. But this man has done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. And when I said that, the man said, you come with me. He said I could come. That's all I know. Well, it really is that simple in many ways. It's deeply profound. It's the most profound thing you'll ever hear, but it's so simple. Children understand it. Jesus is innocent, you're guilty, and you swap places. He said I could come because of that. Unsearchable riches, yes, but as simple as saying, I don't really know, all I know is the man said I could come. And that's what gets you there. And yes, it's true that if at that moment the thief received a pardon from the governor and he lived that he would go on to learn about justification in the Bible. But to keep things straight, those things don't save you. Jesus being on the cross in your place saves you. Nothing else. Let's pray. And Father, we do confess that we are weak and we're blind and we need to have mysteries explained to us. And thank you that the Bible does that for us. Thank you that Jesus' perfect life and death on the cross is for all who would believe, whether Jew or Gentile. And thank you that we Gentiles have been fully included in your gracious and merciful gift of life. And so please, press it into our hearts again this morning, that we deserve death but didn't get it, and Christ didn't deserve death, but he did get it for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.